0: Hi, this is Brian Griffiths, the founder of Maryland Podcast Month. Maryland Podcast Month was founded in 2018 to draw attention to all of the great podcasts and podcasters here in Maryland. And during this time of social distancing, there is no better time to start learning more about locally produced podcasts. Shows like my podcast, Red Maryland Radio, Eye on Annapolis, The Conduit Street Podcast, JB's Drive-In Podcast, The Maryland Crabs, Quality Time, the Society Fringe Players and more are still putting out fresh content. Visit com to learn more
1: about these great Maryland podcasts. That's MarylandPodcastMonth.com. And we thank you for your support of local content. Hello, and welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, how are you handling social distancing and being at home 24-7? <laughs>
0: uh, Kevin, I'm feeling a lot of distance, to be honest. I, I sort of miss the hustle hustle and bustle of Annapolis and the close out of the legislative session and, and everything that comes with it. Miss uh, seeing you and all of our colleagues at MACO. So I, I think everybody's going through the same sort of thing. I'm sure you are, too.
1: I definitely am. And I agree with you. It's it's hard to transition from that hustle and bustle to just being at home. But hopefully we will get through this. We will get through this, but hopefully it's sooner than later.
0: Yeah, flatten the curve. We're doing it.
1: flatten the curve. All right. Today on the podcast, we are going to discuss Maryland's budget process. We'll talk about the role of the executive and the legislature, and then we'll get into an interesting amendment that will be on the ballots for the 2020 presidential primary election that proposes a change to the way we do budgets here in Maryland. So, Michael, first of all, it is budget season. Let's talk a little bit about that And we'll we'll finish this episode with that ballot question. But, you know, talk a little bit about how Maryland does our budget. And we are certainly unique when it comes to other states.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's budget season right now. Um, All the governments in Maryland work on a fiscal year that starts on July 1st for reasons that I can't explain to a lay audience. But for whatever reason, we all do a fiscal year that's July 1 to June 30th which means springtime is the time that governments are sitting down to plot out the finances for the year of he- year ahead. Right. The General assembly just worked through their budget plan and finished that up as as among the last things they did during the legislative session and now counties and and municipal governments are doing the same thing to sit down and figure out what are we going to do fiscally for the next year that conversation and that debate is much more complicated this year than most because of the enormous uncertainty that this, this health crisis is creating over the economy. We know there are going to be effects on the economy generally, on people's employment and their you know, capacity to live their lives the way they want, but that's also mm-hmm. gonna to translate to revenues for public services, and that's a challenge for people in the public sector.
1: Right. I mean, right now, if you're doing a budget, like you said, they're in the final phase, you're having to spend a lot of extra money for fiscal 20 to deal with this public health crisis, obviously. And then looking ahead to 21, if you're trying to project revenues, that's a really tough job right now. The state is certainly going to take a hit when it comes to sales tax and income tax, no doubt. And then for counties, you know, I think the income tax is going to be a big one, just like the state. And then you look at things like hotel taxes, emissions and amusement. Obviously, with all these businesses shut down, those revenues are going to be down. And it's sure. hard to anticipate, you know, how long will this last and what kind of effect will it have? But to be in the final phase of, of trying to do a fiscal 21 budget, yeah, certainly a lot of uncertainty. And it's a difficult job right now to try and figure all this out.
0: Yeah, there's an old saying among public sector budget people that the business of government goes on an opposite cycle from the usual business cycle. So Mm. if you're providing public services to people who need them, suddenly that need tends to go up when the economy falls apart. And if people are out of work and looking for help, they're frequently turning to public services. They're looking for, can I get help into a new job? Can I get help? With my public health problems and so forth, and those are the things they're looking to their counties for. We don't have the ability to just, you know, float a big bond and run a giant deficit like the federal government can. They they can do a two trillion dollar uh, piece of legislation and say let's let's send everybody a check. County mm-hmm. governments need to have the money. We don't have a mint, so it's a different ball game for the state and local governments, and it'll be a challenge. Not that. Not that this is the toughest challenge out there, but it's one of the things that arises in tough times.
1: And you know, I do have to say, counties are on the front lines here, and we've seen counties coming up with different sorts of funds to help people who have lost their job to help small businesses, along with what the state is doing. Counties are really making this work. It's been really impressive to see all the counties in Maryland responding on the front lines in terms of public health, but also in terms of trying to help people who are unemployed, and of course, the small businesses, which we know are the backbone of the economy here in Maryland and across the country.
0: Yeah, totally agreed. I think, you know, large and small jurisdictions, I, I think the, 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 the largest numbers of confirmed cases in Maryland have been in the metropolitan areas. But, you know, take a look at some of the resources that a place like Allegheny County, who only had their first confirmed case, just yesterday, we're recording on right. Thursday. I think yesterday or today was the first time they've had a recorded case. They're already in active mode to prepare for this, have plans for what local businesses can do, and and so forth. So, I mean, they're 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 doing what they can as well. It's it's all hands on deck. It's it's impressive, um, but you know, tough times call for it.
1: Absolutely. And Allegheny, of course, was the last county that did not have reported cases. So now all 24 jurisdictions in Maryland have reported cases. Michael, let's try and pivot a little bit. It's hard not yeah, to talk about this nonstop, right? Yeah, this, but, this
0: could be an hour-long conversation itself,
1: right? <laughs> of course, of course. But, you know, we are Maryland-based and lots of our topics are global. But here we're going to be very Maryland-based. We're going to We're going to focus on Maryland and our budget system, which is one of a kind and sort of weird when you look at it compared to other states. Right. So let's talk a little bit about the, the general principle of checks and balances, which of course means that different branches have overlapping functions. Maryland does that too in most respects, but our budget process, again, is just different.
0: Yeah, I think, I think what we want to do here is lay some groundwork so that we can talk reasonably about this constitutional amendment that the General Assembly passed in this past session, and that we, the voters, will have before us come November. So we feel like the best way to do that is to sort of start where we are today and how does the budget process work today so that when we see a one-paragraph proposal of what the changed process would look like, we at least understand the context for that. So maybe to our listeners, forgive us the indulgence of taking a meandering path to get to it. But I think this is the best way to explain what this is about. So, okay, you know we start with the concept of checks and balances. and this this goes back to whatever, you know, tenth grade civics class and understanding the concepts in government. But this is a you know a bedrock principle in American government and has has since been established in democratic countries across the world, the right. idea that you have multiple branches of government that have sort of complementary roles in establishing and affecting policy, and that the system is designed so that no one branch completely overwhelms the other. Um, right. And, and so it, here in particular, we're speaking about the legislative branch, the General Assembly, and the executive branch, the governor and the various administrative agencies. and. In every state, the process of developing a budget, sort of a spending plan for the year, is a collaborative effort between those two parts of the state government. But mm-hmm. Maryland, like you said, it's, it's not that we're unusual. We're, we, are, we are completely on an island. Nobody does it the way Maryland does. And people who are used to the Maryland system kind of lose sight of we are, we are a complete odd duck here.
1: Yeah, if you talk to people from other states, maybe, you know, colleagues at the county level, when they hear the way we do things, they are flabbergasted, quite frankly, yeah. right? And and so we, we hear that a lot. But when we're looking, you know, the immediate budget, the executive budget, Michael, that's proposed to the General Assembly, only the governor puts money into the budget and the General Assembly's role there is very limited
0: right so each you know each uh, winter time you know January through April is when the General Assembly convenes and the governor proposes a budget for the coming fiscal year in January uh, there's some you know dates set in the Constitution when that needs to be presented and so forth so mm-hmm. governor pr- presents a proposed budget and within that document, is basically the entire spending plan for the general fund and all the special, dedicated special funds and so forth for all state money for the year ahead. Um, and the, the governor's spending plan is basically, I, I don't know, even in the most aggressive and, and rigorous and controversial budget years, the governor's spending plan is probably 95% upheld by the General Assembly by the right. end of all of its process, that here what the governor proposes is a very very important starting point, very different from other places, including the federal government. So, mm-hmm. you know, people, you know the, the the idea that the governor starts starts the conversation in every state, that's true, but here really really defines the conversation. And you're phrasing that the, the governor is the only one who can put something spending into the budget. That's really the key idea. The General Assembly can't say, Governor didn't fund this, but we want to. Let's put the money in. They just can't do it.
1: Right. right. And so you mentioned, you know, the 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 federal government. And so, yeah, the presidential budget is a starting point, but really it doesn't matter very much. Right. right. Because Congress right. shapes the budget. Congress does the spending bills. So while it does start the process, it's it's really not important in terms of what Congress can and can't do in Maryland. Of course, that's a very different story, because, as you mentioned, the General Assembly cannot add to the budget. So that really gives the governor an extraordinary amount of power and we are known as a state that has the most executive power when it comes to budgets.
0: I think on fiscal issues, the Maryland governor is, by everybody's reckoning, the Maryland governor is the most powerful governor among the 50 states. So I don't, I don't think there's much debate about that, um, and that's because of this authority. So, I mean, you know, Kevin, you've you've been spending time in budget hearings where one of the committees or subcommittees of the General Assembly is reviewing an agency budget or several agencies' budgets and so forth, and where in another state that debate might focus on, well, I I don't feel like this budget does enough for this thing that I'm worried about. I wanted to see more people served in this area. I'm I'm worried about uh, people on Medicaid not getting dental services, and I really wish there were more money for that. But, you know, the governor should should have done that. And I'm going to propose an amendment to the budget to make sure that gets mm. properly supported or whatever. And we'll
1: we'll just put the money in. Yeah. Right.
0: right. I mean, like if you're in just about any other state, that's the legislative debate. Should we mm-hmm. should we add to the to the governor's budget here right. in Maryland? That's not on the table at all. So right. the, the, the the practical conversation, I mean, you can you can sort of score points as a legislator and say I'm frustrated the governor didn't fund something but there's no there's no uh, way to act on that. So the general assembly's job is principally are there places where they think the governor's funding could be reduced and cut or you know to a lesser extent and this stuff is important but not really sexy from time to time the the legislature can restrict funds. They can right. say well, this this $5 million program can only really be used for these four purposes, or you can't have the second half of the money until you give us a report and explain what you did about this thing that your last audit revealed, or that kind of stuff.
1: So when we talk about checks and balances again, in other states, although these general assemblies in other states can shape the way the budget the way they want to, also, most of the time in those states, the governor has the ability to line item veto, right? So that's where the system of checks and balances comes back. In Maryland, the governor does not have line item veto there.
0: So in, in, in the idea of a give and a take between the two principal branches of government here, the legislative and executive branch, you know, an ordinary bill, the legislature passes a bill, and then the governor gets a chance to review it and if the governor wants to veto it, the legislature has to have a super majority to override the veto. And that's right. a deliberate sort of check on the legislative authority that the governor can step in and say, I disagree with this. Um, that process doesn't exist in Maryland on the budget. So if you right. think it through on the operating budget, the you know the, what we call the budget, the annual spending plan comes from the governor. And every item where money is being spent was something that the governor put into the bill. So the legislature may have cut something back or may have said we want to report before money gets spent. But by the time they're done with it, there's still no spending proposal there that didn't come from the governor. And so in Maryland, the governor's done. Once the legislature passes it, the House and the Senate have passed the same version of the bill the bill becomes law as soon as it is passed by the house and senate and, and it's enacted right then
1: it's automatic so just to review what the what the general assembly in maryland cannot do they cannot they cannot add and they also cannot move money around
0: now that's a big deal right we mentioned you can't just say let's let's add 5 million bucks but they also can't say let's cut 5 million bucks from over here in item x and place this and use the same $5 million in some new item Y. They can't right. do that either, and that's right. a big deal.
1: Now, what they can do, you mentioned, is they can cut and then fence off uh, money that they want the governor to spend in a particular place. What they can also do is mandate spending, right? They can do that for the next year and years. They can say, you must put this money in the budget for this program or for this item. And that, in a way, is another check. Moving forward, you you sort of restrict what the governor has to do. So you have this you have this big pot of money, but then these items have to be funded, right? So the governor still has money that he can put into the budget for whatever he or she wants to do. But the General Assembly can say, moving forward, you have to put this amount of money in for this item.
0: Right. So one way to think of it is there's a short game and a long game. And the short game is this year's budget. In the 2020 legislative session, there's a debate about one bill for the one-year spending plan for just FY 2021. Okay, you have that debate, and that's the bill that's subject to all these special rules. The only spending that's in it is what comes from the governor. The legislature can cut. They can restrict but they can't add, and then it's automatically passed. The the governor doesn't get another bite at the apple. So in the short game, most people would say, wow, that's an extraordinarily powerful governor. On fiscal issues, your governor really runs the show. When you shift from the short game to the long game, and you say, well, in 2020, the legislature can, however, require that something has to be in the governor's budget in FY22 or in FY25 or in each of the next 10 years, like the big Kerwin spending bill and so forth, the legislature can do that by law. And that's where the legislature has their opportunity to put a stamp on the state's fiscal priorities.
1: Okay. So budget-wise, Maryland governor is number one. And I think we should go ahead and take a break there. And we sort of got into this a little bit, but let's talk on the back half about where the General Assembly has the ability to make its mark. And then, of course, we will get into this constitutional amendment question that will be on the ballot. All that and more after the break. This is John Fernay with Ion Annapolis to let you know about our daily news brief podcast. If you want to keep up on Annapolis area local news, local weather, and local events, check us out. We produce episodes every Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and deliver them right to your phone or computer for free. You can also catch them on our Facebook page, All Annapolis or under the podcast category at iOnAnnapolis.net. You can even ask Alexa to play it for you. So if you want to keep up to speed on Mayor Buckley, County Executive Pittman, Navy football, maybe you're looking for a weekend thing to do, or if you just want to catch the hyper-local weather, give a listen to the Ion on Annapolis Daily News Brief. We'll see you tomorrow morning. Welcome back to the Conduit Street Podcast. Kevin Canale back here with Michael Sanderson. Michael, the first half of this episode, we focused on Maryland's budget process and why it lends itself to the governor being the most powerful when it comes to the budget. And every state recognizes, I think, that Maryland, the executive, is extremely powerful and has the most power when it comes to spending. We
0: call it the executive budget process. And other states, they say, you know, Maryland has this one of a kind thing. It's an executive budget. So, other places would consider their process more of a legislative budget that the governor proposes something, the legislature massages it in every direction it wants to, and the final product is really a legislative product. Here, the governor really has the stand.
1: Okay, so where the General Assembly can make its mark, though, before we took a break, we talked about mandating items in the budget moving forward. So next year, the General Assembly could say, you have to put this much in for this formula, this priority, etc. Give us some specifics, though, on that, Michael, because it is important what they can and they can't do when it comes to mandating spending.
0: Yeah, so so. This is, this is ultimately the way that the legislature can affect its own fiscal priorities, not so much in the budget they're considering at the moment, but they can basically say in future years when the governor at that time presents us a budget, we want to see this item in it. So they can pass a bill saying we think... You know vehicle theft has been a big problem, and we want to make sure there are grants available so that our local police departments can get assistance you know stopping that problem. We want to see at least two million dollars a year into a vehicle theft prevention fund to be used for grants around the state, so our you know frontline law enforcement officers have better tools and better technology to stop that problem. You pass right. a bill. The governor has an opportunity to sign or veto that bill, but once it becomes law, then that's a requirement that each governor has to do, in that case, $2 bucks or whatnot. It is kind of interesting that we've had a little back and forth about what constitutes a true mandate on the governor, and this actually dates back to the last big school spending bill, the, uh, the Thornton legislation from almost 20 years ago, where- right. There were there was a particular component in what was a big complicated school funding bill, probably not quite as complicated as the Kerwin stuff, but but a, a big deal at, at the time, and uh, it had one particular component that basically said the governor shall fund this program, and we'll figure out the details on how how the formula will work a couple of years later. And right. ultimately, the attorney general said, "You've got to be specific if you want to tie the governor's hands." you either have to have a specific dollar amount or a very specific formula that determines how you calculate the correct dollar amount. But you can't just say, fund this program adequately, or do this fully, or make sure you do enough to do X, Y, and Z. All those things that are kind of soft mandates don't really have the same force of law as fund two million
1: bucks. Right. So get a specific number. Don't just say fund this at an appropriate level. That's not going to work. That's not going to hold up. And as you mentioned, Thornton, this is really the way that the General Assembly is able to guide their priorities for school funding. Right. They put things into law that say in a future year's budget, the governor shall fund. X, Y, Z, and then in the next year's budget, X, Y, Z. And it may be a formula right. that continues to grow each year where it may be specific dollar amounts, but that's really the way, again, back to checks right. and balances, that the General Assembly is able to put their stamp on priorities moving forward. Yep. And
0: that, that applies to education. Um, it applies to public safety issues. Uh, we've seen year after year, uh, there all sorts of programs are funded through legislative formulas. Mm-hmm. So... You yeah, know, we saw this year a little bit of debate about the formula uh, funding for community colleges. Okay, right. Relatively big issue, right? Um, you know, we want to make sure people have the training they need to move ahead in, in the economy and so forth. Anyway, there's lots of different programs like that, and the legislature has said rather than this being a completely discretionary item that a given governor can come along and just slash, we'd rather have this be predictable and you know, phased in up to a certain number or something along those lines. So we'll put it into a funding formula. Sometimes those have, you know, we want to get to an endpoint over some stretch of time, that sort of thing. Right. All those things are in formulas. And if the governor wants to do something other than that, the governor needs to come back to the legislature and say, I want an exception to your statutory rule. That's where we see budget reconciliation bills and so forth.
1: And of course, Michael, like clockwork, you know, every Maryland governor from either party doesn't matter. They take a lot of time to complain about a large share of their budget is mandated by the General Assembly. And and thus, they don't have as much discretion as people like to think. And we've seen at least the last two governors, I think, introduce legislation to relax those mandates that are required by statute. In one way or another, you know, either as a function of tough economic times or they don't like the policy generally and they want to cut those provisions across the board. Right. Right. So
0: if you think of this as a bit of a tennis match where you go back and forth and, well, now, you know, the governor gets all the authority at introducing the budget. Well, now the legislature can restrict funds and can cut money out and so forth. Oh, the governor, but the governor is the only one who can put the money in. So the governor's really the one with the force. Oh, but long-term, the legislature can require anything they want. They can put all this stuff into law and they can just require stuff by formula. Now it sounds like the legislature has the upper hand well, the governor comes back and says, you know, uh, the last two governors have both been pretty aggressive using the bully pulpit mm-hmm. and saying mm-hmm. to the public, you know, you think this is my budget, but look, 83 cents of the dollar of everything that I'm putting in the budget is there because I have to. The legislature makes me spend this money and we have a spending problem in this state and it's a function of the legislature, not the governor. It's 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 a fair debate to have, in my opinion. Um, I, I think you know the notion that w- would you want to have the governor be able to just cut school funding by a third in a given year? does that, does that make sense? It's not like we're the only state that does funding formulas for things. right. Um, so you know, so having predictability for some of our major functions makes sense. Uh, there are a few things that are not by, by formulas, but they are basically entitlement programs. So under state law, if you have a certain income, you're entitled to Medicaid and you're entitled to health care through the Medicaid program. If you walk in the door and ask for it, you get it. So right. that, you know, that's sort of an entitlement program that drives its own spending. It's not really a discretionary item. We don't we don't stop telling people you get Medicaid coverage because we're out of money.
1: And you can understand why the General Assembly is is reluctant to accept those proposals, right, to do away with the mandated spending moving forward because they're already arguably the weakest legislature in the country. And if if you didn't if they didn't have the ability to say, you're going to fund XYZ in future years budgets, that would make them virtually irrelevant right. for fiscal matters at least, right?
0: Right. I mean, if, if the General Assembly thinks that community colleges are really important and they say over the next eight years, we want to get from this level to way up there, and we pass that law and they have a majority of people who support it after a public debate and input and so forth, they put that into law. Then if the governor can say, you know what, I just don't feel like doing that, so I'm gonna suspend your your priority and just not fund it, that seems like why bother having the whole legislative process. The way it works today, the legislature has to, you know, they receive a reconciliation bill that might say, we know we want to have this eight year plan, but can we stretch that out to nine years because this year's not quite affordable instead of doing 8%, let's do four this year and four next year. And we'll delay the goal by one year. And the legislature has to pass that bill for the budget to pass. So, you know, that, that, that puts the hand, that puts the, the, the power back in the general assembly's hands in this, in this little bit of a tug of war. So, I mean, that's kind of the way things work today
1: okay so basically before we get into the amendment where we stand as a brief recap the governor has very broad power the legislature has very narrow authority to cut and restrict and the budget of the moment is mostly an executive function in future years the legislature can exert their priorities but the budget does not necessarily need to include those priorities at the end of the process right, there are right. processes to reconcile mandates et cetera, into what is affordable but that's where we stand today Right, And that brings us to the issue of the moment, Michael, which is, is this time for a change here in Maryland? I think our budget process, the way we do things now, goes back to the early 1900s. And there have been bills- More than 100
0: years old.
1: More than 100.
0: and, And a number of our counties have built a budget process that is a similar, sort of a parallel executive budget process, where the county executive's budget- is the default and that the county councils in some of our charter counties, we basically have the parallel structure. We we follow the same model.
1: And we've seen bills over the years, Michael, that would change the budget process here in Maryland. We've seen these bills be proposed. It would require a constitutional amendment, but this year the bill was back. We can talk about that bill a little bit and it did pass. So there will be a question on the ballot The voters will have to approve if they want to change the way we do things for the budget, but the bill this year did actually pass when in previous years it did not move. Right. So
0: it got passed in a modified form. So as you might imagine, uh, there have been over the years, I think more sessions than not in the time I've been working in, in and around the General Assembly, I think more years than not, there's been a bill in, at least proposed and and brought up for a public hearing to say we ought to go to a more conventional system, let the governor introduce a budget, let the legislature do what it wants, and then give the governor back a traditional full veto or even a line item veto and so forth. Let's go back to the system that they use in almost every other state. And some legislators would like to move back to a more conventional budget process. Uh, that's been, you know, debated back and forth for better or worse over years and years. And we saw more or less that same bill introduced this year. Uh, most of us probably figured the outcome would be the same. It would get a, get a public hearing and a little chit-chat and probably no action. Then it seemed like sort of, you know, uh, a novel compromise started to uh, emerge in the latter part of this already abridged session. And the bill got life late.
1: So it definitely got life late. It passed out of the Senate. And as we all know, this was an abbreviated session. It was an extraordinary session because you weren't able to go in and testify publicly after a certain date. They had to lock down the House and the Senate buildings for fear of the COVID-19 virus spreading uh, throughout the General Assembly. So it was odd in that respect anyway. But, Michael, this bill did pop out of the Senate toward the end of session, right, toward the end of an abridged right. session. Yeah. And I think let's talk about what the bill, how the bill was amended. You mentioned that this was it moved out in sort of a, a compromise form. And I think the biggest thing we can get into the specifics, but I do think that one of the biggest components here is that this bill will not go into effect until after Governor Hogan completes his term. So it will not affect the way that Governor Hogan introduces in his budget powers. It would be for the next governor. And I think that was something they included specifically to sort of assuage some concerns that this would affect this governor and that it's, right. it wouldn't be fair to sort of change the game in the middle of the process.
0: Right. Try and diffuse the argument that this is an issue of the moment. This is the current legislature having quarrels with the current governor. And they said, no, we don't even want to affect that. We just think structurally this is the better way to go, independent of who are, who the people are in these offices. So, you know, start next term. That's fine. So you start with that as a confine and, and then... if, If the central idea of moving from an executive budget where the legislature can only cut, if the central idea was let the legislature add money to the budget, just say, let's spend more on X and Y and Z, even though the governor didn't want to, the big break on this bill that moved it from a dead bill to a live bill was when supporters said, well, what if we get rid of the idea of just adding overall spending. Right. And we just have a debate about whether the legislature can rearrange priorities within the spending amounts that the governor has proposed.
1: So, so the governor would still create the cap in terms of what the budget can be, the operating budget, but then the General Assembly can move money around within the confines of that cap that is proposed by the governor.
0: Right. So that's that's the idea that brought this bill back into having a chance to pass and ultimately passing out of the Senate uh, the idea that the bill the spending level would still be within the constraints that are that that were set by the governor but the legislature could could redirect money so we can cut five million out of this program and move it to a separate program I think it's a very significant change um, that if the budget is a way to express, priorities. Right. And I think I think that's all yes. budget is. Is These are the things that we value the most. One of the things you're talking about is the, is the overall level of spending and the, the resources you're willing to raise to support it. That's one decision. Mm-hmm. But then where do you put the money? How much of it goes into public safety versus education versus environment versus health mm-hmm. and so forth? As you as you exert, you know, your priorities, the money follows that. And the legislature would be able to say, we need more money for public health, and we're willing to do with less in something else to get it, right?
1: Right. That's a new
0: thing that this amendment would authorize the legislature to do on the budget they're debating that year.
1: So it would really authorize them to set the priorities, and as long as they stay within the confines of that cap and spending, that ultimately is still up to the governor. But it would allow them to completely rearrange the priorities in the budget by cutting maybe the governor's priorities and then creating their own in different areas. So that's a significant change in this bill. But as you said, I think what what allowed the bill to move ultimately was, okay, let's cut out this piece about the General Assembly can just add money over top of what the governor's cap on the budget budget is. Let's get rid of that. And this becomes a little bit more palatable when we start talking about redirecting money within the budget for the current year. That made it move.
0: I mean, I, I guess one way of thinking of it is if there were two philosophical objections to the original bill, one person saying, I just want the executive branch to make the decisions on how we spend money then you don't like the bill as proposed. But right. another person's out there saying, what I don't want is a legislature deciding that the overall amount of money we're going to spend is going to go up and up. I'm afraid the legislature may overspend, and that'll put pressure on taxes or on you know, you know revenues that'll be, be borne by businesses or by individuals or whatever. That's what I'm worried about. The, uh, the amended bill no longer has that second concern. The overall spending level is not what we're talking about anymore, just the component parts. The legislature would have a chance to pass a budget that moves money from X to Y.
1: Right. So and, with this bill, right.
0: right. So then as we've been talking about checks and balances, now the the last component of the bill to try and stay fair with the concept of checks and balances is if the legislature now is able to say, let's put more money in this public health area and we did it by cutting a bunch of other things, now there's new spending that the governor didn't put there. So rather than the bill becoming law without the governor having another bite at the apple, this amendment would say the governor can review those items and would be granted a line item veto over the things The legislature decided to add to the budget by by redirecting funds that were already there.
1: And so the governor then gets that line item veto authority for items that are added in. And the General Assembly can still override those line item vetoes, though, correct? If they come back and they have the necessary votes, which you need a supermajority to do it. So so it's a
0: it would be somewhere in between the current strange Maryland process that's heavily weighted for the executive and the more conventional other state process which i think you could say is heavily weighted toward the legislature and instead you'd have a principally executive budget with the with the legislative ability to rearrange priorities within the overall budget level and then with the, the le- with the executive has a chance to come back and review those decisions and have the standard veto you know opportunity on on those particular items so it's it's sort of a hybrid and that idea is what turned this from a dead idea to a live one and ultimately to a ballot question that we're going to see come November
1: yeah and i think you know it, when it got out of the senate it went over to the house and literally the house debated the bill in committee on the final day of session in the morning it was a long and drawn out debate and I think some of the criticism from people who don't like this bill is that they really rushed it through on the last day. They had a pub- they had a hearing that you could watch online, but then you know you spend the rules to have a couple of readings in one day to move the bill through on the last day.
0: Yeah, that that feels like fishy process to some people when you say let's let's suspend our rules. Sorry, you know that other bill. That's not going to make it because it couldn't get through the process. But this right. one, we're going to let it jump through two hoops at once. That's that that feels odd. And if you if you oppose a bill, then you're inclined to say, well, I don't I don't want to do special things for this bill.
1: But you know, the votes are there. Right. And again, they did that with a lot of bills. I mean, it's pretty sure. standard. You know, as session is about to wrap up. But obviously, the, this is a bill. The opponents would say, You've, we've seen this introduced many times before. We've never passed it. We shouldn't be rushing it through on the last day of session. Nonetheless, it did pass through the General Assembly. The governor cannot veto this bill because it is a constitutional amendment to question, right? So the bill right. will be on the ballot. Michael, I guess what we should wrap here with is... You know, first of all, when voters look at this amendment, we can talk about the exact language because I know that there's been some discussion about that as well. And we'll put a link on the blog for folks who want to take a look at it. But basically, the the question is that you would you'd be asked on the ballot to authorize the General Assembly to increase, diminish or add items in the annual budget bill in order to enact a balanced state operating operating budget. Again, this goes into effect in fiscal 24 and each year thereafter. And then it also goes on to say uh, the governor will have that authority to line item veto and the General Assembly may not exceed the total proposed appropriations as submitted by the governor. I think some people are going to look at this question and, you know, always when it comes to how do you word questions on a ballot when you're talking about a constitutional amendment, it becomes a debate in itself. But I don't know. You, I guess you could say whatever you wanted to about how they worded this or, and what it's going to mean to the average voter on Election Day.
0: All right. It's it's a peculiar thing that um, the traditional path for a constitutional amendment in Maryland is the legislature drafts the wording for the Constitution and then hands that legislation to the secretary of state who drafts the wording Right. Will appear on the ballot for voters to see. I mean, the theory being, you know, like like seven paragraphs of legalese, and oh you know, this word is stricken and this word is increased and blah blah. blah. Yeah, that's that's too tedious right. for voters to really process. So let's have the secretary of state synthesize what the amendment is meant to do. You write that in three or four plain sentences, and that's the ballot question. And when people. When people support that, then that is meant to have the same effect as if they had read word for word the the technical amendment to the Constitution, so the amendment right. takes effect. And right. Anyhow, that's how we've always done it. Um, we've taken a turn of late with the legislature pre-writing the language that would appear on the ballot. We'll see how that plays out. But But ultimately, the reason we wanted to give the explanation of the Maryland process today Is what we're changing from and toward kind of needed that context. We're on an island and this amendment would bring us maybe, you know, onto the causeway back to the mainland, but not even all the way back to where other states are.
1: Right. So let's end. Let's wrap here. I want to get your thoughts on what do you expect to happen differently if this is passed by Maryland voters this fall? Of course, again, with the caveat that this bill would not take effect, this amendment would not take effect until uh, 2024, which would be when the next governor uh, comes into power in Maryland. So it wouldn't take immediate effect. But what are the practical nuts and bolts changes you'd expect if this does get passed?
0: I, I don't know. I mean, I've I've done policy work in Maryland for times when we've had a, a, a partisan split between the legislative and executive branch and times when the partisanship has been the same. And there are always differences of opinion or differences of priorities between the governor and legislative leaders. So mm-hmm. I would imagine you'll see things around the margin, independent of whether there's a partisan split. I would imagine you'd see, you know, Governor's a particular big fan of this particular program, the legislature not so much, and as it turns out, these items get moved out and replaced with something else that is either politically popular or it aligns with legislative priorities, and you have probably a healthy debate about which of those two items is really the state's top priority. I mean, we don't have that kind of debate now in the executive process because There's really no public debate about what gets in this year. That's just the governor's call. Right. Um, Right. So I think it puts some new topics on the table. So I I don't know. Um, You know, we don't know what the issues might be two, three, four, or 20 or 30 or 40 years down the road. But my guess would be there'd probably be more public discourse about public spending priorities. If this amendment were passed and we had a a somewhat more wide open budget process, that'd be my guess. That's a kind of a timid forecast, but
1: we'll take it. All right. So we can leave it there for this week. Of course, we hope you enjoyed our bonus episode earlier this week. And, Michael, I think we're planning on doing another bonus episode early next week. So trying to keep folks in the loop, trying to explore different policy areas a little bit more in depth. I I think that's going to work out pretty well.
0: I think we can take advantage of of the, the the time and space that we've got to try and fill some time for our listeners. Uh, there's plenty of policy out there, even if there, there are not meetings being convened and votes being tallied and so forth. There's still an awful lot going on out there at the federal level, state and local level. We're interested in all of it. and. You, know, you and I sat down to game plan. Well, what are we going to do for our next four or five weeks worth of podcasts? And we came up with 12 things we wanted to talk about. Right. It feels right, like, right. OK, maybe maybe we can do double time for a while. So uh, we, I think having Walter Olson and talk about issues of liberty in times of crisis earlier this week was was a really good sort of a different lane for us. But I like that conversation and I want to do more stuff in that general flavor
1: yeah and it certainly was timely as well and please bear with us as we are social distancing we're doing this all over the internet so you know we don't have studio quality but we hope that it's good enough if you enjoy the podcast please go ahead and subscribe go ahead and like it and you can also follow us on social media twitter facebook and of course the conduit street blog but until early next week michael and kevin signing off and we will talk to you soon